Well, I, for much of my life, I've been blessed um, with the opportunity to work with people, which is a good thing for me. I'm an extrovert. Um, and one of the things you realize is you work with people, um, and, th- and then when you, when you marry a people, uh, too, that uh, it, you start to realize how different we are as people, that we, we see the world a certain way, we think a certain way, we have personality, temperaments, strengths, and we find it odd that other people don't, even though we don't say that out loud. Much of the conflict we have in our lives has to do with the fact that people don't think like we do. And we, wish they, we just wish they would. Um, but what's supposed to happen, I, I suppose, as you, as you mature in your life as an individual, is that you're supposed to realize that, hey, you know, there's things about me that maybe aren't that great, that actually other people have strengths that I don't have. And in fact, sometimes working with or living with another person reflects back to you differences in your own life that sometimes, quite frankly, are embarrassing, things you'd rather not admit. I think it's often why um, people don't stay in relationships or marriages for long because it's kind of like a mirror that you're looking into, and sometimes we don't like what we see, and we'd rather assume it's not a mirror, it's just the other person. But it it reflects things. Now, one of the things I've realized about myself, and this is embarrassing to admit, but I'll I'll, I'll tell it to you anyways, that I realized when my wife and I got married as we got to know each other, that I'm one of those people that um, in, an, in an argument or discussion, I assume I'm right. Like, that's my ingoing assumption. Um, I married someone whose ingoing assumption is that, is that she's wrong, so we both had to change, because um, she's usually more right. Uh, I'm one of those people that walks into a room and thinks, oh yeah, why wouldn't people want to talk to me? And she would walk in the room thinking, well, I'm not sure anyone would want to talk to me. Now, that's, some of that is differences. Hopefully, some of that has changed in both of our lives and, and gotten refined by being together in relationship and correct But if you think about sort of that behavior, that mentality that says, oh, yeah, people want to talk to me or I'm always right, we would call that person a self-centered person, right? That, that, that's self-centeredness. But actually, so is assuming that nobody would want to talk to you. It's self-centeredness, too, because what's at the center in both people's thinking? Self. Right? And as I said to you before, there are proud people and there are proud people. There are those of us that think I'm good and those of us think I'm no good. You know? Everyone likes me, no one likes me. What's the common denominator in that thinking? Me. It's the, it's the self at the center. It's an orientation of seeing the world and how others respond to me, whether I think I'm good or I'm not good. It's kind of actually a universal human condition. Now, part of the problem with this is that religion kind of propagates self-centeredness. Because the fundamental orientation in religion is me, what I do, whatever religion it is, whatever's on the door of the place of worship, whatever holy book it is, we can have this mentality around religion that says, well, it depends how you do. And some people use religion to say, hey, I'm I'm good about myself. I do these things. I go to mass, synagogue, temple, church, whatever it is. I give alms. I do all this stuff. I'm good. Another person, religion is a weight that they care. Oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that. And some people say, well, that's, that's kind of what we're reminded of every time we're exposed to religious leaders or, or religious texts. It's like what we are and aren't doing. I, am I good or I'm not good? The both sides of self-centeredness come out and in a sense, sometimes are even propagated by religion. So some people have said, well, that's the problem with religion. The problem is if you get rid of religion, self-centeredness doesn't go away because it's just a universal human condition. It's the way that we think about ourselves. It's a fundamental orientation to viewing the world where I am, life is a play, and I am on the stage. Now, some people will say, I'm I'm the lead actor, and and everyone else is 
supporting actors and actresses in my life, and some of them are props too. I might, my picture's in the cover of the program. Another person will say, oh, I'm only the fourth line chorus girl. Look at that girl, she's got the lead. I'm not even in, I'm just a name in the program. I don't even a picture. Both people are centered on self and see the world that way, whether they see themselves at the front of the stage or at the back, it's a view of self-centeredness. So actually, if you get rid of religion, you don't get rid of self-centeredness. What you start to realize too is actually, even in our good deeds, whether we do them out of religious motivations or not, self-centeredness can be a part of that. People can say, well, I'm a good person because I do these things. I help other people. I give lots of money away. I'm, I'm a charitable person. I'm nice. People come to me for help. Other people say, oh, I should do more. You know, I should help other people. I shouldn't be so selfish. It's a self-centered mentality. Some people have that, you know, that martyr complex or that mentality that is, defines themselves by the fact that they're, oh, you know, oh don't, oh, don't worry. I'll do it. I always do. I'll pick up after you. I'll catch all those balls that are dropping. That's their identity as someone who's a helper. But even in that, we can be revealed that our self-centeredness can come out. And you know how it comes out? Is when things aren't going the way that we hope to with the people we're helping. Or when we feel like, I can't do any more. You know, like, I've, haven't I done enough? I've done enough. Or other people say, have I done enough? Sometimes we get angry when the person we're helping is not responding, and suddenly the whole speech that we've been having in our head for months and months comes out. Well, you know how much I've done for you? I've do Why? Because we've been keeping score. That's how we know if even our good deeds are self-centered, because we keep score. Either we keep score to measure up to whoever it is, whoever's standard, or we keep score to feel like we're, we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, or we keep score so that we can drop it on that person at that time that we finally had enough of their selfishness, and we say, do you know how much I do for you? The, the speeches you got from your parents that you swore you'd never give to your kids. But you just know them so well, so you're able to deliver them. <laughs> this is that when, when, when we realize we've been keeping score, we start to realize, wait a second. Whether my good deeds are religiously motivated or not, much of them comes out of an orientation where self is at the center. And so if we're honest, we might start to think, well, how do I get away from this? Because I'm the only person I know. Like, I only have my mind my heart. I can only help see the world through my own eyes. What do I do about it? G.K. Chesterton, the 20th century British, he, he was a novelist, a journalist, he was a literary critic, and he was very famous in London at the time that he was writing, um, many contemporaries, and the London Times uh, sent out a question to several uh, of Chesterton's contemporaries and some, you know, well-written uh, or well-spoken authors and said, write back into the Times the answer to this question, what is wrong with the world? And Chesterton wrote, Dear Sirs, I am, sincerely, G.K. Chesterton. It's a mentality that says, you know what? Underneath all the other things that I might think are wrong with the world, even when I understand that most of my motivations are self-centered, that I would realize I'm part of the problem. I'm perhaps the bigger part of the problem in what's wrong with the world. Now, if we want to agree with Chesterton, it leaves us with thinking, well, if the world needs a rescue from something, who's going to rescue me from me? It is actually the story, not just of our present time, but it's the story of all of humanity. Somebody was asking me the other day, one of my neighbors, like, what do you talk about on Sunday morning? Like, you talk about the Old Testament? What's the Old Testament about anyway? And I said, well, if you had to summarize the whole story of the Old Testament is that I can't save me. That's the, that's, that's the summary, is that what is wrong with the world is not just out there, it's in here, and I actually can't fix it because 
if I'm supposed to save the world, what do I do with the fact that I can't save myself? And so as we read the biography of Jesus that comes to us sort of in a sense halfway through the story of scripture, it is a story of rescue. We realize that Jesus actually came into the world not just to fix all that's wrong out there, but to deal with what's going on in here, to deal with the fact that fundamentally whether we think we're people of faith or not, we operate out of a mentality where self is at the center. We're going to read a passage of scripture this morning where Jesus encounters someone who is actually dealing with this problem even though he doesn't know that he is. And Jesus deals with it in a, in a, quite in an unexpected way, and we're going to read that together. It's from Luke chapter 10, verse 25. So I'm reading from Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. And now this was a, a, an expert in biblical law. So this isn't just your average lawyer. This is someone who is skilled at interpreting scripture. He stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So this guy gets up to test Jesus. He's a biblical expert. And Jesus has been teaching a lot from the scriptures. And so these guys who are sort of the residential authority on scripture are coming to try to see just how good is his theology. Does he know what he's talking about? And so he throws out a question to Jesus to test him. Hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the idea of eternal life was essentially, how do I know I'm right with God and that I'm going to get what's coming to me in the next life? The, the Jewish worldview had a very strong belief that that, that, that there would be a resurrection, that there would be this reward that was waiting for those who were faithful. And so he says to Jesus, hey, how do I know I'm going to get mine? How do I know I'm going to get it? And Jesus says, well, you're an expert in the law. What does it say? Now, that's a loaded question because the Jews had about 600 and, if you read out of De Deuteronomy, there was like 639 something laws. And a lot of the designs of their architecture, they used the pomegranate because apparently the pomegranate has 630 something seeds in it. It's this idea of that it represented the, the, all that was supposed to be in the Jewish law. Well, he says, what, how, how do you read it? In other words, what's the summary? What are all those laws about? And he said, well, which would have been common to a, a Jew, especially a Jew who knew the law, would have known this answer. Really comes down to two things. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, everything you think, everything you say, everything you do. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you answered right. Do that and you're in. Well, now suddenly the guy's caught, because who could do that? Oh, I, just, I, mean, I just have to do that. I just have to love God with everything I think, say, and do, and love my neighbor as myself, and I'm good. So he's caught now, and he's exposed. And we know actually that he didn't have the best of motives, because we know his, cent his self was at the center, right? Because at the end of it, Luke kind of gives us this uh, author's note. He wanted to justify himself. He was looking to say, I'm good. I've done what I need to do. And so he says, okay, Jesus, that's a bit broad. Who's my neighbor? How do I, just specify it for me. Seems like an innocent question, but it was actually saying, hey, it was a negotiation, right? Get the most for the least. That's, that's the goal in every negotiation. Give up the least, get the most, right? If you win a negotiation, you gave up the least and you got the most. You say, okay, fine, I, I want eternal life. Who's my neighbor? Give me the parameters because I just want to know that I've done this and 
this, that's too broad to love God and love other people. So tell me who my neighbor is. Essentially, it was a question of someone coming from the self at the center saying, just tell me what I need to do. This is what I want to get. Tell me who that is, define it, and I'll go do it, and then I can check the box and say that I've done it. It was the religious answer. It was how religion propagates itself. Just define the rules for me. Just spell it out. Don't leave it so vague as love. Tell me what to do. In response, Jesus tells him this story. <clears throat> In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, we, if you've heard this story before, or maybe you understand the, sort of the Good Samaritan, that's where that, that phrase comes from, is the story of this man who helps someone who is in need. Now, we might want to quickly conclude, oh, that's what Jesus was saying. Hey, if you want to know who your neighbor is, you know, just try to love people and, and look after them and, and be a Good Samaritan and then move on from there. But lest we do that too quickly, we need to understand actually the context of the story. <clears throat> what was Jesus really getting at? Why was this his response to the man's question who is my neighbor? So Jesus told this story. Now we can assume he's talking about a Jewish man because that was a road traveled well by Jews, Jerusalem to Jericho. There's a Jewish man walking along. It was called, they knew this road. It was called the Path of Blood because it was kind of a scary road. It was caves all around. It was, it was prime kind of pickings for people to lie in wait for someone and beat them up and take their stuff. And so that happens to this poor man. And he's beaten up, lying in the road, and he's left for half dead. And Jesus says, Two more Jews come along, a people of his own kind, from his own culture. First, a priest, someone who's paid to help, someone who should, we would think, help this man. And Jesus says he actually passed by on the other side of the road. Another man comes along, another Jew. This one's a Levite. So this was someone who, Levites were those who were, they were kind of the worship leaders in the synagogue. Another person who paid to help, should help, walks by on the other side. And then Jesus says, and a Samaritan comes along. And we think, oh yeah, a good Samaritan. It's like, no, a Jew would never have called a Samaritan good. The Samaritans and Jews hated each other. Samaritans were sort of half Jewish, half something else. They were considered half-breeds by the Jews. And each of them thought the other was totally wrong when it came to their beliefs in God. So there was major ethnic and religious tension between these two groups. They hated each other. It would be like saying, you know, a Maple Leaf fan came along and saw a Canadians fan lying in the street, left for dead. It was the Hatfields and the McCoys. It was the 
Hutus and the Tutsis in Rwanda. Major ethnic tension. They hated each other. We would expect that this guy would ride his donkey over this dude, back it up a couple times, and off he would go. Just finish him off. This would be an unexpected turn in the story for the man who was listening, who was a Jewish man, talking about a Jewish man who'd been beaten up, two Jews who walked past him, and now a Samaritan comes along. Not what he expected in the story. And look what Jesus says the Samaritan did. It said he, he didn't pass by on the other road. He went to him. He bound up his wounds, which means, we don't think this guy was a doctor, which means he probably ripped some of his clothes, bandaged up the guy's wounds. Now, he's left half dead, which means it hasn't been that long ago, so there's some element of risk here. He's in the path of blood himself. Probably those two other guys, we don't know why they passed by, but maybe they're thinking, I don't want to get killed. I don't know who that guy is. He probably looks dead already anyway, and I got to go. This guy stops, rips some of his own clothes, bandages him up. It says he's poured oil and wine on him, so it would have been some, for some of his own food, so he's, now he's spending some money. Gets off his donkey, puts him on the donkey, so now he's got to walk. Takes him to an inn, and the inns weren't known as places of, they weren't hospitals, so he pays the guy, and he has to pay him handsomely to look after him. The, the, the amount of money was a couple weeks uh, worth of stay, so more than what was going to be needed for the man. So he pays it ahead of time, and then he says, whatever's left, I'll pay you when I come back. At great expense to himself, this man stops and does what the other two people maybe should have done but didn't do. And he had all the reasons in the world not to do it. Again, it was a safety risk. It was also a risk like Jews and Samaritans, they hated each other not because of individual issues. They hated each other because Jews hate Samaritans. If you find a Samaritan and you're a Jew, you don't help them, not because that guy has, you have some issue with that guy. He's just a Samaritan. You just don't help them. That's the way it works. They hated each other. And so there was, it was for your own sake, your own family would not really want you helping somebody from another family. You'd be betraying the family. You'd be going against the traditions. You'd be actually even a blasphemer because they considered each other to be blasphemers. In other words, people who who didn't worship God properly, who were in danger of the wrath of God. So you're now helping someone who's a blasphemer, an impure, someone who's impure in God's eyes. That's how they saw each other. So at great risk to himself, this Samaritan comes and helps this man out. Now, why was Jesus telling this story to this guy? He was, I think, proposing what we would call now a Copernican revolution. You know, Copernicus was the scientist and mathematician that proposed that, in fact, the earth was not at the center of the universe, but the sun was. What if, Copernicus said, we are not the center of the world? What if the world does not revolve around us, but something else? What if the sun is actually at the center of the whole universe? And Copernicus started a revolution that historians credit the scientific revolution with because everything started to make sense once the sun was put at the center. Gravity, seasons, orbit, all of this stuff, things that they had known started to fall into place and it launched a whole new arena and actually an era of history, the scientific revolution, where one man saying, maybe we're not at the center. 
This is, it was a Copernican revolution that Jesus was suggesting to this man. Because look at his question. He said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus turned the whole thing around and says, well, what is a good neighbor? The man was saying, is it this man, not this man? And Jesus says, I want to talk about you, man. You are at the center. I want you to shift out of there and just stop for a second and think, maybe I don't sit at the center of the universe. He was causing the man to see, and he did it in a very tricky way. Because if it had been the Samaritan lying in the road and the Jewish man coming along, the Jewish man would have said, well, I can't stop. That's easy. No brainer. Keep going. Maybe a little kick on the side, but I'm not stopping. But he put the Jewish man on the road. It was a shift. He was saying, hey, who's my neighbor? And he says, imagine you're lying in a road. Imagine now we're not talking about, do I help this guy or this guy? Imagine you are in the need of someone else's help. Now you need a neighbor. What is a neighbor actually like? Right? It was a shift. It was a revolution. Maybe the man thought, oh yeah, I know this is an anti-clerical kind of story, right? Jesus is going to kick down the religious guys. Two religious guys come along, the non-religious Jew comes and helps. No. All Jews, one major in need, and the Samaritan comes along. It was a Copernican revolution. He was saying to the man, I want you to see the world through a different set of eyes. You are not the guy riding in with ability to help. You are the guy lying half dead, desperate, and you're desperate even for the help of someone that you hate. And you'll take it if they would only give it to you. He was shifting the man off his spot, saying you're seeing the world through this way. It's a Copernican revolution. Now, you and I, in this day, especially living in this city, in this country, hopefully, we don't have certain ethnic groups that we hate. You know, there aren't, hopefully, aren't people that you were raised to hate just because of your, their skin color. And we don't hate people of other religions. But there are Samaritans in our lives. They are the, the others. People that are actually not like us. We have carefully constructed worlds. All of us do. People that we like and want to help and people that are they're just different from us. They're kind of odd. They don't really fall within our circle. We wouldn't say we hate them, but we don't love them. They're not the people we drop everything for. And Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to check yourself. Think about the way that you see the world. We see the world. Jews and Samaritans, the ones I help, the ones I love, the ones I don't really like, the ones I kind of would just walk on the other side of the road if I was coming across them. Either because I don't understand them, they're different than me, they scare me, or maybe they've hurt me. Maybe I have reason, right? Those aren't the people we jump to help, the ones that have hurt us, the ones that we have a, an issue with. And Jesus is saying, I want you to think about that differently. What would it be like if we began to shift our perspective instead of seeing the world where we are at the center and there's people that revolve around us, the ones who help us, the ones who we're happy to help because they all fit in our little world. And then there are those who are sort of outside. And regardless of why they are, and they're probably not ethnic or religious reasons, but there are people that we are comfortable and quick to help and others that we'd say, oh, I don't think that's my problem. I don't think I want to go there or I'm not, definitely not helping that person 
Do you know what they did to me or do you know what they represent? And sometimes we can grow up in families with that mentality. May not be an ethnic reason, but there may be groups of people or certain people or certain specific people that our family said, no, we don't associate with them. Maybe it used to be people within our own family that are like that. Somewhere in all of our lives, there is that boundary that's drawn. This is all these people. And Jesus busts it open. Right? We want the rules. Religion wants the rules. Tell me what I have to do. Do this, not that person. Jesus says, you know, this isn't about the rules. This is about love. Now all bets are off. He was tearing down the walls that separate people, the carefully constructed walls that we put up in our lives, and all of us have them. What would it be like to begin to look at the people in our lives and see the others the way that we see the ones who are closest to us? One of the things that we do in this church is encourage you to get into a home group. But that home group is not something you check off and go, yep, done it. Jesus, tell me what I need to do. Oh, get in a home group? Jesus never said that, so you don't even have to listen to that. What is the reason? And, and why are the home groups not aligned with, hey, just give me the top 10 people you like in the church, and we'll put you in a home group with them. Why? Because that's not what we believe the way the, the community in Christ is meant to happen. Jesus destroys all of those barriers, those things that we say, well, people like us, people not like us. The reason that you are in a home group is to give a chance for us to hear the stories of people that otherwise we, don't, we wouldn't care about. Let's just be honest. We don't know how they fit in our lives. We maybe already made some mentality or some judgment about who we think they are and what they're about, maybe through a couple of conversations that we've had, but we've concluded not really that interested in getting to know that person. And yet, then as we sit and we listen and we ask questions, we start to realize, wow, I never knew that about you. I never knew you were like that. I know, we're, now, we're now starting to see another person differently and the walls start to come down. Things that we would put up between us and say, I don't think that person has anything to give me. I don't think that person has anything. What is that? That is a worldview where self is at the center of the universe. And Jesus says, oh, I need to just stop for a second and think, what if you are not? at the center of the universe? What if I want to do something in your life? What if you are in need and you don't realize that this person coming along is actually the person I have sent into your life? It's a change in mentality. And not just in our church. You know, last week, one of my favorite weekends of the year at our church, being a part of being connected to people around the world and another part of the world in West Africa, who are in desperate need of help. But what about people in our own sphere? Yes, we, we make commitments and give money to them, but what about people in your neighborhood? What about people in your family or your workplace or your kid's school? That if you just stopped long enough, maybe you walked home with them from school one day, you asked them a question you wouldn't normally ask. What if you stopped after walking your dog and kind of lingered in front of your neighbor's house? What if you said, hey, let's go for a drink. Let's have a coffee. Let's go for a run. What you will find is that many, many people around us, ourselves included, may be hanging by a thread. They don't seem like they're lying in the middle of the road, beaten up. But in their financial life or their marriage or physically, they are hanging on by a thread. And you stop long enough, instead of walking along the other side of the road, to say, hey, I wonder if they need something. I wonder if God has sent them into my life. 
How would we know unless we got moved off our spot, unless we let Jesus start to take down some of the walls that we put between us and said, hey, maybe you need to see the world differently. What if you began to love people? I said it this way first when I was ready. What if you treated people in your church, in your neighborhood, like you treat your family? But maybe that's not a good question. (laughs) Maybe you wouldn't want that. But what if you began to see the people in your neighborhood or your school or in this church as those, as the same way the people that you would drop everything for right now? because you like them, you love them, and they love you, and it's all good, big loving happening. What if you extended that circle to people that you wouldn't normally otherwise? Jesus sort of started to take those things down. And you might say, well, how do we do that? You know, like, like the, the, the teacher of the law. He says, what's, what's the law? Well, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. <laughs> Okay, Jesus, how do we do that? It's actually the final shift in the Copernican revolution that Jesus is proposing that is actually needed. And this part, the man in the story would have never known, but you and I know because we know the rest of the story. Not only, you know, Jesus wasn't proposing ultimately a hypothetical situation where hypothetically you're beaten up and in the road and hypothetically this Samaritan comes along and you're in need of his help, and the guy could say, well, I've never been in that place, Jesus. That would never happen, and Jesus would say, yes, it has. Yes, you are. This man didn't know, but in a little while, Jesus was going to stretch out his arms and be nailed to a cross. Why? Because we were the ones in the road, and Jesus was the Samaritan. Ultimately, if this shift is going to happen in our lives, it's incomplete in this story. It's made complete on the cross because when we look at the cross, we realize, wait a second. Why did someone have to do that for me? If I'm fine, if I'm not lying in the road half dead, nobody needs to tear their own clothes, spend themselves, for me. Nobody needs to do that if I'm fine. Why did he need to die? Because you and I were in the road. That sin, in a sense, has come into our lives, not just out there in the cosmic sense of what happened in the history of time, but in here. Sin is the reason that I see the world as revolving around me. That is the heart of sin, that it's about me. And that has caused me by my own choices, to be robbed and beaten of the person I was supposed to be. And so no matter how much I want to do that, I could not save myself, and I I am actually in a desperate situation. And when I see myself like that, and I see Jesus now coming to me, now all the categories that I have about who I should help and who doesn't, and God helps those who help themselves, I'm only gonna help those who haven't screwed up their own lives themselves, all of those things start to be obliterated, right? Because why, why don't we help certain people? We say, well, let's draw the line here. Let's help people who really can't help themselves. The kids in Guinea, okay, let's help them. But people here who make their own choices, I've heard people say that, oh, I never give money to people on the street because they're just gonna waste it. So I'll keep it and waste it. Because I'm way better at wasting my money than giving it to someone. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't. I'm just saying. It's a mentality, right? Oh, they got, I'm sure they could work. What's wrong with them? Wait. 
Let's just help the people who really didn't get themselves into their own mess. But if they made their own choices, well, should we really help them? Well, did, did you and I make our own choices to lie in a road and get beaten up? Come on, all of us have suffered more from ourselves than anybody else. No one has lied to you more than you. No one has tricked you and abused you more than you. In the sense of the decisions, the conversations you've had with yourself and the choices you've made, and same with me. And when I see myself that way, lying in the road, now I start to go, okay, Jesus didn't help me because I was a victim. He helped me because he loved me. It starts to change the way that we see helping anyone when we see ourselves ultimately as people, not on the horse riding in, which is what we think the application is. Go in, ride on a horse, and help everyone. No, no, see yourself is on the road, and Jesus coming to you, who was under no obligation to help us. And yet he did. Not because we were victims. We were victims of our own choices. And when we begin to see the world that way, everything changes. Why? Because what is at the center now is Jesus. I'm not at the center of my life anymore. Now I see that I was the one in desperate need of help and he came to me. And it now starts to change the way I see everyone. I stop ranking the world in this bell curve of those who deserve help and those who don't. Those who I like to help and that's a good spend and investment of my time and those people will waste my time if I give it to them, getting no results. It starts to change the way we see the world when we see ourselves on the road and Jesus coming to us. You might say, well, okay, but how, how do we do that? How do we actually do that? Here's what my experience has been, because what's the moral of the story? We're supposed to help everyone all the time? Uh, what, what, if I, what if I don't have enough to help? Well, Jonathan Edwards put it this way, is an old um, preacher, I can't remember if he's from England or Scotland. I should know my Christian history better. He said, what does it mean to bear another person's burden except that we are now burdened because we helped them? How, nobody would help anyone. Nobody would bear another's burdens if we said, well, I can't afford to do that. That's actually going to cost me. Yes, that's what it means to bear another person's burden. We are now burdened because we helped them. It doesn't tell us that Samaritan had deep, deep pockets. It doesn't tell us whether he had a million other coins or those were his last two. But we know he ripped his clothes, put himself in harm's way, put this guy on the donkey so he would have to walk, we don't know how far, went to the inn, paid what was needed, and was going to come back and pay the rest. At great cost to himself, he helped another person. And this is what Jesus is saying. This is what it means to be a neighbor. Never mind who you should help. This is the kind of person that I'm calling you to be. And it's okay, but how do I know? There's needs everywhere. This is Guinea, and the more we find out, the bigger the need grows. This is the only way I know. It's not as if I now move out of the center and others come into the center. It's not about being fundamentally other-centered, where we suddenly think that now we just have to do everything for everyone. Jesus is at the center. Why does Jesus have to stay at the center? Because it is an ongoing conversation with the one who says, come walk with me. I want to take you on a journey that's a bit different than the one you've been on. And the only way that I have had peace in my heart is how would you ever put your head on the pillow at night to say, I've done enough. 
There's, that's actually not the conversation to have. But every night, Jesus says, hey, I want you to rest because I made you to sleep. Every Sunday, I want you to stop doing all your work because I made you to rest every week. It doesn't depend on you. It depends on me. But I want you to walk with me. Why? Because I want you to see the world through my eyes. That's so how when we sang that song, open the eyes of my heart, means they're saying, okay, I have, I have these eyes, but they see things a certain way. My heart needs to see what you see. The center of our lives is not meant to be us or others. It's love, which is God. So we bring Jesus into the center and say, okay, let's start a different conversation. I'm walking down the street, or I, before my feet hit the floor in the morning, and I don't do this every day, but I should, because the days I do it, it just changes my day. Jesus, you know everything that's going to happen this day. I have lots of plans, but I don't see any of it. So open my eyes so that I don't walk to the other side of the road and walk by someone that I meant to stop and talk, ask a question, because sometimes the needs aren't as obvious as someone lying half dead in the middle of the road. Certainly in our half of the world, you can't see it with your own eyes. You need Jesus. It is the conversation to begin to say, okay, come into the center of my life. Teach me to see the world and people the way you see it. The Copernican revolution begins when we say, okay, I'm not at the center, you come in. Start to tear down the walls that I put up between me and other people, these people, not that people, ones I like, ones I don't like, people like me, people not like me. Okay, I need you to begin to change that. So come into the center. That's the beginning of the revolution is to say, come and be in the center of my life. So here's what I want to suggest to you as you try to maybe begin that revolution. Now, I'm not saying here, go out and help everyone. I'm saying bring Jesus into the center of your life and let him start to way that, change the way you see the world. And so the first thing to do, is to, which is what we're doing this morning, and you're going to have a chance to sing a few songs in response, is to remember and reflect on the mess that Jesus has rescued you from. We will never outgrow that cross. The cross is not something in our past in the history as Christians say, oh yeah, it saved me once and now I moved on. Jesus brought me out of that mess, but now I'm good. No, I live in the shadow of that gladly every day of my life, realizing, remembering, he's constantly saving me. I didn't just need him back then. Oh, I need you now. That's the expression of a heart that knows that we have the potential with one or two decisions or the next day to be lying half dead in the middle of the road. Every one of us has the potential to do things that we thought we would never do. And when we remember that, we remember, oh, I need you. That's the beginning of the revolution. To say, I'm not at the center you are. I need to see first myself the way you see me. And then the second question is this, who in your circle, whether it's your neighborhood, school, your work, or in your home group, is beaten up? You may know, you may know. There is someone in your life you know that you've... If you're honest, you've walked on the other side of the road because you don't know how to deal with it. You're going to get messy if you go there. It's going to be costly to yourself. You don't even know how. And so you've kind of walked on the other side of the road. Some of us, maybe there's a name that comes right to mind, and I would say, listen, just take a step towards to ask a question, to pick up the phone and say, how are you doing, even if you don't want to know the answer or you think you know what it's going to be. Now, some of you may say, well, I don't know. Okay, Jesus, open my eyes. Help me see the way you see it. There are people around me half dead and I'm not stopping long enough, so help me to know, hey, why don't you call that person? Or that person that you always seen coming into your house, you always say hi to each other at the end of your driveway, but that's it, you know? Morning, Fred, morning, Ralph. You remember those two guys? <laughs> to stop and say, well, okay, maybe I'll, hey, how are you? To take a step towards someone 
or pray for God to help you see them. And the third one is this, and I was debating whether or not to put this in here, but I just felt like this is one of those things where we are at risk of walking by. Yesterday was National Day of the Woman, um, March 8th. Um, we are in the midst of uh, a government re-examination of prostitution laws in this country. And it's been an ongoing conversation for a long time. Um, and the government right now has opened up a survey or a, 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 a yeah, a really essentially a survey with Canadians to say, what do you think as Canadians? Now, prostitutes and prostitution is one of those things that generally speaking in our culture, we just walk on the other side of the street. Even though there are people in every business, in every neighborhood, in every church that are part of visiting prostitutes, even though that's a reality everywhere. Still, generally, the mentality is, I'm just going to walk on the other side of the street. I don't know why that's going on. I don't even want to know. I don't want to look. And even if we might have compassion on the average person in Canada says, well, that's their own choice. They're adults. They could leave if they want. I'm just going to walk on the other side of the road. We have a culture that thinks that way. And our government is re-examining this, saying, hey, should we decriminalize this in order to make it safer or whatever? Although there's an interview with the guy, the lead lawyer, who's brought this up, because it's not the government has initiated, but a lawyer, and he said, I really wanted to put my name on the map and have a case that was a landmark case. So I've initiated this. That's the reason this is coming up. But many people are just saying, well, yeah, they're adults. Just let them make their own decision. So here's what I would say. The, the vast majority of us, myself included, and the church is uninformed when it comes to these things. But if you look at the stats, 90% of women who are in would get out if they could. 85% are involved prior to the age of 16, even though they're now adults. So it's closely tied to trafficking, which is, again, something we just don't want to know. We're just going to walk the other side of the street. And so there's actually something we need to say, wait a second, is something going on here that we're not paying attention to? There's a Nordic model that's being used in some of the Scandinavian countries that has gone the opposite way of decriminalization is actually just prosecuting the buyers but not the sellers. So the men and the pimps get prosecuted and jailed as opposed to decriminalization. And they have seen it reduce in those countries, whereas other countries that have decriminalized have not seen it reduce. So there are lobby groups in our country saying, let's explore a different model. The only option isn't to just decriminalize the whole thing. And so the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada has some information online. So what I would say is, before you fill out the survey, go to the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada site. It's on the back of your bulletin, and just read. It's a little bit. We, and the reason I bring this up is there's a two-week window left on that survey. And so I'm not telling you what to write on it, but I'm saying being informed. And I just feel like this is something that as a church, we just can't walk on the other side of the road on. And so I'll leave that with you. What happens if we do this? What happens if we say to Jesus, okay, you come to the center and start to let me see the world the way you see it? It can start a revolution in our lives. When Copernicus proposed that theory that perhaps the sun is at the center, everything started to make sense. Other things that they knew began to line up and say, yes, I get it. When we say to Jesus, you come to the center, 
and start to help me see the world the way you see it. My belief is things in our lives that had previously seemed to be disparate phenomenon, things that we can't understand are connected, start to make sense when we see the world the way he sees it. That's what's in it for us. It's not simply a troubling experience. You know, well, now you're gonna have to help everyone and never be selfish and all that stuff. No, it's to say, Jesus, if you come to the center, everything in my life will start to make more sense because I'll see it the way that you see it. I was thinking about the fact that most of us in our lives don't really want revolution to happen. <laughs> it's not a word that we, we think about. It's not something we seek. It's maybe not something you expected to uh, talk about this Sunday morning, but I was thinking about that any, any revolution that happened started with small steps and usually questions. Well, what if? What if? What if the, the sun was actually at the center of the universe and not the earth? Copernicus could have never seen, and maybe he wouldn't have ever wanted to even be a part of revolution. Revolution wasn't, wasn't on his mind, but he began with a step. And so I just want to bless you with that step. What if? What would it mean to start to see the world the way Jesus sees it? And don't worry about the revolution. That's his work. But as you take a small step to say, Jesus, help me see the world the way you see it, he'll lead you every step. Did you receive that blessing this morning? Thank you so much for coming. We'll see you at the three-minute party.